Guys, Guns and Grills is a, a top shot style shooting competition. We have four stations. You'll get to shoot a variety of weapons at targets and keep score. It's a competition. Guys love and thrive on competition, but it's also just a blast. A great opportunity to invite friends and neighbors, uh, people that you may be trying to uh, to reach for Christ. Sin. It's an old archery term, a target shooting term, and it just means to miss the bullseye, miss the mark. What, a, what an opportunity to have an event that invites itself almost. The guys, guns, and grills will will target shoot. We'll go through stations of competition, keep score. So once again, you got 12 shots. Two shots are practice. Our top five guys from our church move on to a championship round later in the year, where they're competing against the top five from other churches. For a lot of people that we're trying to reach, when we test the physical aspect of ourselves, then all of a sudden our spiritual side opens up just a little bit and becomes teachable. Try to hit dead center and see where you hit. If you'd like to get more information about participating in your own Guys, Guns, and Grills event, simply visit heartoftheoutdoors.org. Pastor Jeff and others are not here because they are in Mexico. If you can look on your seat, maybe next to you, you'll see these cards. And these cards are just reminders to pray for them while they are away. And so if we can, let's just take a moment to pray for them. And then we will open the word of God to see what the Lord has for us this morning. So let's pray for those that are not with us. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be a church And part of being a church is enjoying the family, and uh, some of our family is gone today, and we are glad that they are serving in another place. And we ask that you affirm your presence with them, and that you would encourage them through the week to do what will be most helpful in the place where they serve. And Father, for those that are here, remind us to pray, remind us to not only pray for those that are serving in Mexico, but those who are back here, who uh, have missing parts from their family, a husband or a wife or a son or whomever, Lord. Just allow us to remember to pray and to think about what it is that's happening in a place far from us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I have a son, he's alive too, one's 25 and the other one's 13. And when my son was, the 13-year-old son was much younger, 
uh, he had a friend that uh, he would often play with in the neighborhood. And uh, he and Charlie were always going places and doing things. And they, we have a nice big backyard, so they would play in the backyard. And on occasion, something with which they were playing with would end up on the roof of my house, right? Whether it was a Frisbee or a ball or something like that, it would end up on the roof of the house. And so in order for them to be able to do anything more, they had to figure out a way to get it off the roof. And the easiest way to do that was to have my son take Charlie by the hand, or at least say, Charlie, come with me, walk into the house and say, Dad, the Frisbee's on the roof. Get it down for us, please. That's the easiest way to do it. But of course, being eight or nine years old, they think they can figure it out. And so uh, oftentimes I would walk out of the house and see them looking at the roof of the house and stacking chairs and doing things like that, trying to figure out a way to get that frisbee or whatever off the roof of the house. And they would lose precious time of playing by not simply coming to me and saying, Dad, please get that frisbee off the roof for me. And as strange as that sounds and as easy as it sounds, sometimes we're in that same position as believers in Jesus Christ or as those who are searching for something that Christ can do for us. And sometimes we just fail to ask. We just fail to say, I need your help, God. So this morning, what I would like for us to do is turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And I would like to try and persuade you to ask for help by telling you about the amazing, wonderful, marvelous, matchless grace of God. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, there are three manifestations of grace that I am hopeful will cause you to be so thrilled by what is available that you will say, God, I want that. I need that. You see, for those of us that have walked in faith, we look at grace as a fundamental truth. It's an important part to all that we do. And sometimes when we hear this passage, Ephesians chapter 2, we say, I've heard this before. But you see, the thing that we want to do is to keep that from happening. Instead of saying, I've heard that before, we want to say, I'm going to hear this again and be rekindled in my enthusiasm for the grace that God has available to me. So this morning, let's look at three manifestations of the grace of God. The first one is found in verses 4 and 5 of Ephesians chapter 2. The first manifestation of grace is that the priority of grace is deliverance. The priority of grace is deliverance. Notice what it says in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. The passage begins with but, and then it says because of his great love for us, God. The key here is the but God part. You see, earlier in verses 1 through Three, he kind of explains the state we find ourselves in. We are sinners who need to be saved. But God, because of his great love and mercy, is available to us. You see, God is able and capable of doing something for us. Not your mom, not your dad, not your brother or your sister or your teacher, not some childhood friend, but God is capable of rescuing you and allowing the grace of God to come into your life to deliver you from sin and guilt that binds you or to remind you of that grace and to say, you know what, because of his grace, I can go forward and do what I need to do. 
You see, God is able to deliver us from his sin. In World War I, Teddy Roosevelt, who had been a hero in the Spanish-American War, as well as a president of the United States, went to then-president Woodrow Wilson. And he said to him, he says, I want to be a, a leader in this war. I, can, I want to be that guy. Woodrow Wilson looked at Teddy Roosevelt and said, you're too old and too overweight. You can't do it. You can't do it. And you see, sometimes that's what we do. We look to those that are old and overweight and unable to do it to rescue us. When God is there available and saying to us, you know, I am here for you to rescue you, to deliver you, to bring deliverance in your life. Please notice there's a two-pronged approach in the delivery. Do you notice what it says? Because of his great love for us. He loves us. And so he wants to deliver us. Carl Barth, who was a biblical theologian, he said this. He said, in a lifetime of study, the most profound truth I have found is this. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. The most profound truth is that Jesus loves you. Because of his great love, he is able to deliver us. But please notice there is another part here. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. Now, I don't know if you underline in your Bible or if you mark your Bible, but I have that underlined in my Bible because when I saw that, I paused and I thought, you know what? I'm glad that it doesn't say judgment. I'm glad that it doesn't say he is rich in judgment because he has every right to be rich in judgment, doesn't he? We have sinned against him. So for him to judge us, that's okay. But it says mercy because of his great love for us and God who is rich in mercy. Mercy, not giving us what we deserve. You see, I understand hell. I understand that. I understand that I'm a sinner and that I would deserve to go to hell. I, deserve, I, I understand that I am separated from God and that I need someone to make it so that I'm not going to hell. I understand punishment. I understand that. But I am overwhelmed by mercy. I'm overwhelmed by that concept that God would give us something that we don't deserve. I'm overwhelmed by the fact that he loves me so much that he is able to reach out to me in mercy and save me. Now, this word mercy has, has two parts to it. When he talks about mercy, it is an emotional thing. It's an emotional thing where God looks at us and sees that we are unable to save ourselves, and he is moved emotionally by that. That's what that word mercy has in it. He is emotionally moved by that. You've been moved by that before, right? You've seen someone that's ill or someone that's sick, and you're moved emotionally. You know, Man, I wish I could do something for them. When my wife and I first got married, we moved to Winona Lake, Indiana. And we lived in an apartment above a house. And we could look out and see Winona Lake, Indiana, the, the Winona Lake right there. And so we would oftentimes walk past it on our way to do things. And one day I was walking past having run an errand. And as I was coming by, I saw a pontoon boat in the water. It was kind of a choppy day, and so the pontoon was bouncing around. And I noticed there were people gathering around the shore. So as I approached them and asked, I said to one guy, I said, what's going on here? And the guy said, well, you know, the American Magicians Association is in town for a conference. And some guy just put chains on himself and jumped off the back of the pontoon. He's going to try to do an escape. He said, but now they've lost him. And sure enough, what happened was the guy who was driving the pontoon did not anchor the pontoon. And so as the water chopped, the guy jumps out and the pontoon kind of lost perspective and place where the guy was. 
And no one could see a head bobbing or anything. We're standing on the shore. And people were moved emotionally with sadness with what's going on out in front of them. And you could hear the sirens in the back and the rescue guys showed up and they finally found the guy after a couple of hours and he had gotten stuck just below the surface of the water in some rocks and was able to bob back up. But I was moved emotionally. Many people were moved emotionally, but there was nothing we could do to help that guy. Well, God not only is moved emotionally when he sees your need, but he can do something about it. He loves us so much, and he is emotionally moved by us, and he delivers us through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, he says to us, because of his great love, he is rich in mercy. He gives that to us. There's nothing wrong with emotion, but it is just emotion if there's no ability to save. And God not only has the emotion, but he has the ability to save us. Look at verse 5. It says in verse 5, He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. We were dead in sins and God made us alive. It is by grace you have been saved. Now he says this right here. He says, made us alive with Christ. You know what he's doing? He's taking us back. He's taking us back to the cross where Christ died for us and he was dead They took him off the cross. They put his body into a tomb. They sealed the tomb off. And what happened three days later? He came back to life. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He came back to life. And that's what God is saying here. He's saying, I have made you alive with Christ. Just like Christ was dead and I made him alive, you were dead and I can make you alive. You see, it is what Christ can do. He says in verse 5, made us alive with Christ. Christ. Now, we all know that God can close his eyes and pretend that you never sinned. He could do that because he's God. But the integrity of heaven is compromised. Sin would be encouraged. If God is willing to ignore sin, then sin on, right? So what he does instead, instead on the cross, God treated Christ as if he personally committed every sin that every person would ever commit who would believe. And so as a result, Christ took it all on himself. He died for us, paying the price of that sin, going to the grave, and then rising again triumphantly over that sin and death. You see, so he says, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. One of the first jobs I ever had was in high school. I was 16 years old, and I was hired at a hospital to be an orderly. Um, my, my basketball coach got me the job, and he says, this will be perfect for you. You work a couple hours after school, and it'll be great. And I went through the training and all those kinds of things, and I was doing okay. You know, I'm not a big fan of emptying bedpans and doing that kind of thing like that, but that was part of the job. I did it. Filling people's water jugs and being a gopher and all that, I, I did it, and I was fine. But then one day, the training kicked in. You know, during orientation, they told us about these things called code blue, And what they would do is they would shout code blue over the intercom and then give the room number. So it would be code blue uh, 212. And so the orderlies were to race to room 212, clear out the room, and make sure the doctors had access to whoever was there. And code blue meant cardiac problems, you know, heart issues. And I remember the first time for me was the last time because I heard code blue and I froze. And by the time I made it up to the stairs, everyone else was there, the nurses and the doctors. And it was a scene out of television, right? The screen is, is flat, and there's a person pumping their chest. 
There's another person getting the paddles ready to, to shock the person back into life. And that was the discussion. That's, that's all that they're talking about is how can we get this person, how can we get life back into this person? And they're, they're pumping and standing back and shocking them and all those kinds of things like that. There were never any discussions about, you know, maybe if we put her in a better room. You know, if we put her in a better room, she might, she might be okay. Or, you know, these hospital gowns are embarrassing. Why don't we get her out of that hospital gown, put her in a real nice uh, uh, sleep outfit, and she'll look better and she'll feel better and everything. There was none of that kind of talk because she was dead. She needed life. And so what they were talking about is how do we get life back into this body? And that's what God does through Christ. He sees that we are dead. He doesn't say, oh, well, you know, let's clean that person up a little bit. Instead, he says, here's my son. Trust in him and you have life. You're delivered from the transgressions in which you find yourself. You are no longer dead. You are made alive because of Christ and what he did. Grace because of Christ. Forgiveness because of Christ. New life because of Christ. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Can we pause for just a moment? That is a marvelous, wonderful truth. But the problem is, once you have been the recipient of that forgiveness, of that grace, then all of a sudden, when somebody does you wrong, you have to extend that grace back to them. And Christ becomes the standard by which we are measured. We forgive as Christ forgave us. It's daunting, isn't it? Because there are some times when people do things to us and we just want to hold a grudge. We just, it just makes me so mad. I turn on my PowerPoint at school and the kids boo. I just want to give them the notes. Do I hold a grudge or do I move on? You see, it's about us, isn't it? Well, I was hurt. Christ died. Were you hurt that badly? You see, this is a wonderful truth, but then it becomes incumbent upon us to reach out to others and say, I forgive you too. Here's grace. Here's grace. Look at what he says. It is by grace you have been saved. You see, grace here, it's written in a perfect tense meaning that there is a completed action with continuing results. The completed action is, I have been saved by grace. Marvelous deliverance has come to me. But because of the continuing action, I have grace that is dynamic, that I'm sharing and giving to others because of what Christ did when he died on the cross for me. You see the dynamic there? It is a marvelous, wonderful thing to understand that the priority of grace is deliverance. Deliverance. Please notice the second manifestation of the grace of God is he tells us the purpose of grace. In verse 6 through, 10, uh, 6 through 9, he says the purpose of grace is display. He puts us on display. Verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And here's the purpose statement. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. 
there is a lofty status that is given to us as a result of God's deliverance in order that he might show, in order that he might put on display. Now, there's good news and bad news there. Here's the bad news. The bad news is, if we have experienced the marvelous rush of grace into our lives, we will one day be put on display. But what will be on display? He says right in the verse. He says that he might show how wonderful, marvelous, and great you are. No. In order that he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. You see, what he's going to do is he's going to showcase us to the heavenly realms and say, this is the person that I delivered through my grace. And we'll be on display so that everyone will see that what has happened has been God's grace. It will not be about us. It will be about him. You say, well, that, that's kind of his bad news because I kind of like to get a little pat on the back every now and then. Yeah, but here's the good news. The good news is that the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us. You see, we're the recipients of all that. So while we may not be the ones that the angels are going, whoa, but they will be saying, you've gotten grace. It will be a marvelous thing for us to be able to be a part of it because we're getting it. We won't need somebody to pat us on the back. We won't need somebody to say, whoa, wow, you're awesome. Because God will be there radiating his greatness over us. And we will be the ones that will be receiving that. You see, God makes sure that we understand in verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Verse 5, verse 7, verse 8, all this grace through faith. See what he's doing for us? See what he's giving us? I don't know if you've ever read the book Pilgrim's Progress. It's a book written by John Bunyan, who was in prison at the time. It's about the middle of the 1800s it was written. And it's a story about the Christian life told in, a, in an allegory form. And so uh, his, his name is Christian, and he is on his way to the celestial city, so he's the pilgrim that's going to heaven, and it shows things that happen in his life. And he, is, he, he encounters a man, and the man says to him, What is your name? And he says, Well, my name is now Christian, but I was once called Graceless. How awesome is that? He doesn't say, I was once called non-Christian. I was once called lost, which he was. Instead, he says, I was graceless. He says, but now I've experienced the grace of God in my life, and I'm Christian. So the, the question this morning is, are you graceless or full of grace? Are you graceless or full of grace? You see, it's available to you. God's marvelous, wonderful grace is available to you. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is a saving that happens by the grace of God through faith that is dynamic, that allows us to go through life. It's not just static. It's dynamic. And that faith is the channel that allows that grace to rush into our lives, right? It is by faith that we have that grace. I went camping on Lake Michigan and had a beautiful beach in as it happens, you know, you go to the beach and you start building the, the sandcastles with the walls and the castle, and that's what I was doing. I was down there with my son, and we're building this. And I have the walls, and I have the sandcastle, and it's looking pretty good. And I notice my son kind of leaves for a moment and comes back, and he starts digging a trench outside of my castle wall. 
and didn't really think anything. And then all of a sudden the trench became a channel and he was digging a channel down towards Lake Michigan. And once he got to Lake Michigan, the water starts coming up the channel and starts hitting my walls and washing away my walls. And there's nothing I can do because here is the mighty Lake Michigan rolling up onto the shores, washing away my sandcastle. And pretty soon it's obliterated because of that canal that my son built to bring the waters up into my castle and to destroy my walls. That's what it is, friends. It's the faith that channels the marvelous, fathomless grace of God to flood into our lives, to wash away the walls that hinder us. It's grace that saves. And the purpose is to put us on display not by works, so that no one can boast. No one can boast. That's what he says here. In verse 9, he says, not by works, so that no one can boast. Benjamin Franklin said this, a man wrapped up in himself makes a very small bundle. This morning, if you are wrapped up in yourself, then you are missing the grace of God. There are some of you that are here And you have, in your mind, I have done everything by myself. I am a very successful person. I am a successful father, mother, whatever it is. I'm a successful business person. I am very successful. I can take care of myself. You are a small package. My regular job is to teach at a school. That's what I do. And one time I had a little problem with a parent um, because uh, their student did not get the grade that they thought they should have gotten. So they came to me and they said, um, I'd like for you to change the grade. I said, no. And so the parent gave me this compelling argument as to why I should change the grade. They finished their compelling argument. I said, no. Then the parent stood up and said, you know, I pay your salary. Now listen, I don't make a lot, but I make more than it costs to go to the school. I know that. So I knew that wasn't it. And the parent became enraged at me. They said, you must change this grade. And I said, I'm not going to change it. It's compromising my integrity. I said, I'm not going to change the grade. The parent went on to tell me that not only will they stop paying the tuition, but they will hope that my 401 I think we have 403Bs. I think they said 401K. I hope it crashes and it doesn't do anything. I mean, they just went off on me. And I'm sitting behind my desk thinking, there's no way I'm changing this grade. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But I I felt so bad for the parent because they were so wrapped up in this one small thing and wrapped up in themselves thinking they had this marvelous power to crush me. Don't allow that small package to hinder you from taking this step of faith and saying, you know what, I want the grace of God in my life. Not by works so that no one can boast. The priority of grace is deliverance. The purpose of grace is display. And finally, look at verse 10. The practice of grace is duty. The practice of grace is duty. Verse 10 says, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You've heard this before. The word workmanship means poem, means poem. So it says, for we are God's poems. Now, can you imagine what a poem written by God must be like? 
It's not the, the simple roses are red, violets are blue, I'm tired of listening, I sure hope you're through. It's not, it's not that simple. This is God who has created us, who has made the poem. He is the one that has, has, has fashioned you. He says it in verse 10 as well. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. It's the same word that's used in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Created in Christ Jesus. You see where we keep making our way back to Christ. In Christ, through Christ. He is the one that allows this to happen. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. There's no mistaking that there is a vitality that comes when we link ourselves in relationship to Christ. You see, I have had the marvelous privilege of being next to someone who was about to take their last breath and that person say to me, I trust Christ as my Savior. And then moments later they have died. And so I was thrilled that they were at that moment able to to embrace Christ and enjoy eternity in heaven. But that's not the normal. The normal is many of us trust Christ as our Savior, and then God leaves us here to do something. And the reason he leaves us here is because of what the verse says in verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has a job for you. You know, when Jeff stands up here and says that, it's true. He has a job for you to do. And wh- whether it's a job in the church or whether it's a job somewhere else, it's, it's a job that God has prepared for you. Now think back to the original illustration that I opened with of, of Charlie and Adam. Adam the son takes Charlie, brings her into the presence of the father. That's me. I go outside, I go up on the roof, and I take down the Frisbee, and I give it to Charlie and to Adam. What do they do? Do they stand and look at me? No. They go out and play. Because once we have experienced the marvelous grace of God's deliverance and he gives to us what we need, that's when it all begins, right? You see, what happens here is we begin to understand that God has done something for us. God and good works go hand in hand. These good works turn you into a disciple instead of a simple convert. These good works turn you into a servant instead of a philanthropist. You see what's happening here? You see, God says, I'm saving you. I'm giving you grace. And that grace is going to enable you to do things that I've already prepared for you to do. I've got something for you that I want you to do now that you're mine, is what he's saying. You see, God is so marvelous in how he puts things together. He doesn't just leave us to ourselves. And we need to understand that God has prepared that he has something for us in his marvelous, amazing grace that he gives to us. Like I said, I have a son, and um, the youngest one, and he plays basketball. And when he was, I, it was like third or fourth grade, he was having a really bad couple of days. Um, and then he had a bad game or a couple of bad games, and, and it was really rough. And, you know, as a parent, you're in the stands, you watch, and you just blame the coach because they're the ones that always fail, right? It's not your kid. Uh, but anyway, so I go home, and I'm talking to my son, and he is so down. I said to him, I said, okay, listen, I said, if, if I were in a gym and they took all of the third graders and lined them up against the wall, I would walk in and you would be my first pick. I would take you above any of the rest. 
I don't know what it did for him. It made me feel better. But, you know, I, I don't know what it did for him. But it was a reminder to him that his father loved him and cared for him no matter what anything else happened. And that's what God does for us. God looks at us and he reminds us, listen, it's rough. It's a bad week. It's a bad day. It's a bad moment. But I have something for you. I have selected you to be number one on my team. And he has that ability to make us all number ones. And so as we go through life, we need to remind ourselves of what he has done for us in teaching and giving us the marvelous grace of God. Gypsy Smith was an evangelist. And uh, Gypsy Smith um, lived from 1860 to 1947, 87 years. At age 15, he, he truly was a gypsy. His mother died when he was seven. His father, at age 15, took him out of the gypsy camp. They moved into London. His father got a job. He ran into a guy named uh, William Booth who was running the Salvation Army, and he was converted to Christ. And Gypsy Smith traveled around with William Booth for a while, and then he went out on his own, and he began to go all over the place preaching and telling people about Jesus. And wherever he went, he was a popular speaker. They loved him. He had such enthusiasm and zeal for his message. He traveled across from uh, Great Britain to the United States so many times that he lost count. He held meetings, and everywhere he went, people came by the thousands to hear his story of the grace of God in his life. And after one meeting, a guy walked up to him, and he said, Gypsy Smith, how is it that you can keep your zeal and your enthusiasm and your excitement for Jesus Christ? And Gypsy Smith had a ready reply. His reply was, I have never forgotten the wonder of it all. You know what the wonder of it all is? That God would send his son to the cross, die, be resurrected, and allow me to experience his grace by trusting in that sacrifice. That's the wonder of it all. I hope today that as you leave this place, you remember the priority of grace is deliverance. The purpose of grace is display. And the practice of grace is duty. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your scriptures. Because in your book, we find out about life. And Lord, may our lives be better because we have heard your word and may our lives be better because that word reminds us of the grace that you have so generously given us. And Father, may we move ahead in honoring you. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here today. Have a wonderful week.